The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Romans 5, and we're going to start in verse 1, okay? Uh, And while you turn there, I just want to bring your attention back to and kind of remind us all of uh, the only miracle besides the resurrection of Christ that is recorded in all four Gospels. Anybody know that off the top of your head? Don't yell it out. It's pretty cool, right? So apparently this miracle stood out to the apostles, the disciples. Uh, This is the only one recorded in all four Gospels. It's when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Everyone at least heard of that before? It's a pretty big deal. Um, When Jesus fed the 5,000, so the highlights of the story are uh, people are following around, listening to Jesus talk. It becomes late at night. The disciples are freaking out because everybody's hungry, and you guys know what happens when people get hungry, right? Especially Christians, right? We get hangry. We don't just get hungry. Bad attitudes start flying. It can be a really volatile situation. So the disciples are like, Jesus, it's getting late. People are hungry. We need to send them out of here because if they stay around and all their hangriness joins together, we're going to have a serious problem, maybe a riot. And uh, Jesus says, what are you guys talking about, man? We'll, we'll take care of it. And uh, he says, what do we got? And the disciples said, well, uh, we got five little barley loaves here and a couple fish. The Bible says there was 5,000 men there plus women and children. So estimates range from fifteen to 20,000 people there on the hillside there to listen to Jesus preach. Uh, and I think it's very interesting. Jesus takes those, that little bit of food that they had. He blesses it, begins to break it up. I think it's interesting. I think we could overlook this. He hands the food to his disciples to hand out. I mean, I, I assume Jesus being Jesus, he could have snapped his fingers and food would just appeared in the laps of everybody. But he involved his disciples in the process of executing the miracle. And uh, so he does that. And... Uh, the really cool thing is, so everybody eats. It says everyone was full, but the disciples' job wasn't done yet because then they had to go around and pick up all the extra. And it says there was 12 baskets extra after fifteen to 20,000 people ate off of five little barley loaves and two fish. This is a miracle. If you're sitting there thinking, well, that's impossible, you're absolutely right. I agree with you. Uh, that's why it's called a miracle. So um, we do believe in those. So I, don't, I mean, maybe you don't, and that's okay. Uh, hopefully you do by the time we get done talking today. But, uh, and I want to show you this. Some of you may see, say, well, okay, that's cool. I, I see stuff like that in the Bible. And, but, you know, I, I want to see a miracle. I want to see one. Well, uh, I told you guys last week that um, the beginning of the year, we committed as a church to build two houses for two families in Mexico. Okay? Uh, and we, it was... You know, the old, the old adage, biting off more than you could chew, uh, if it wasn't for faith in God and belief in miracles, we, we definitely did that. We, we took a big old bite. And uh, I just want to say to you today that God is faithful. And much like uh, those boys picking up 12 baskets of extra, uh, we needed $13,000 for the building material to build those two houses. As it sits today, we have $16,000 to take down to Mexico and be a blessing. So why don't we thank Jesus that miracles still happen today. And, and you might say, oh, come on, man, that, how is that a miracle? I, I just, you can believe me or not. You can do whatever you want with this. Here, I, I, this is the truth. The, the vast majority of the dollars that have come in to do this project came from places we would have never seen coming. People whose names we didn't know, and God literally has woven this thing together and done a miracle for us. 
another piece of information and something I would ask you to pray about. Uh, we found out just this last week that the village that we're heading to specifically uh, had a fire this week. Fifteen families' houses burnt down in the place exactly where we're going. And there's a lot of ways you could think about this. Here's how I think about it. I think, I know that we didn't know the place that was selected for us to go build these two houses, that there was going to be a fire that was going to burn down 15 houses the week before we went. I do know that God knew that, though. And I do know that there's going to be a lot of people there crying out for God's help, and I just believe he's going to send us down there to be that help. And so we're going to have some extra funds. We're finding out right now how it is we can be the, the biggest blessing to that community. Uh, Jesus still does miracles. He knows what he's doing, and I'm real thankful for it. So praise God for that. I just wanted to keep you as the church family updated, and hopefully you're encouraged uh, by the fact that Jesus is, is working amongst us. To me, miracles just as vibrant and beautiful. You know, maybe, maybe this isn't 15,000 people eating on a hillside, but um, it's $16,000 that pretty much came out of nowhere. Uh, and I think it came from, from King Jesus. So I'm real thankful for that. And it's going to put us in a position to be able to be a blessing. So amen. Uh, we are continuing this week in our series, Who Are You? And uh, we are learning about the importance of our identity being rooted in and built upon the beautiful truth that we are children of God through faith in Christ. And so the premise, the overarching idea tonight that we're going to deal with is, as children of God, you are loved. Now this may seem like a foregone conclusion. You may say, well, of course everyone knows God loves them, right? I mean, hasn't there been Jesus loves you bumper stickers, you know, overzealous, overpeppy Christians screaming that in public places for a long time, right? Jesus loves you, right? I mean, so we think, we assume most people at least in the English-speaking world, have heard that idea. And so it could seem to us that maybe it wouldn't make a lot of sense to belabor the point of trying to convince people that God loves them. I would humbly submit to you that there's a difference between knowing and believing. Knowing something is simply intellectual acknowledgement. Believing something goes deeper, and it affects values and behaviors. My hope today is to make a case that we should believe not just know, but believe that God loves us and live in light of that truth. Hopefully during that process, you will have a chance to assess if your life and actions reflect a deeply held belief of the love that God has for you. That's my hope today. We're going to read Romans 5. Um, we're, going to, we're, we're going to really zero in on verse 8. However, we're going to read 1 through 11 because I think the context kind of demands it so we know what's going on above and below. And furthermore, I would just say to you before I read this that uh, Romans 5, 1 through 5, uh, are perhaps some of the most important verses uh, for me personally in all of my life and ministry. And my great hope is that if you're a part of Love City, you would commit these to memory because if we could get um, at least just a few people to really believe what these verses are saying... Um, we could turn hell upside down and win a bunch of victories for Jesus. So let's just read this together, okay? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Here we go. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Beautiful scriptures. Let's, uh, let's step back and zero in on uh, verse 8. And it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. Here's what this means. This means whether today you are a devout follower of God, whether you're indifferent towards him, whether you don't believe he exists, or even if you hate him, God loves you. You are not the exception to the rule. You are not the one with so much darkness in your heart or sin in your life that you have rendered God incapable of loving you. You can't be nasty enough or dirty enough to get God to quit loving you. Some of you have tried. I know I did. If there was a contest for the dirtiest, nastiest, I'd, I'd have been in the running for sure. And I'm real thankful that this verse tells me that while I was yet a sinner, that God loved me. And so much so that he would step in my place. That he would die in my place. That's what this is talking about. Someone might dare die for a good man, but not for us. If we really understood the depth of our sin and, and how wretched we were, we would understand that there wasn't a whole lot in us that would cause God to do what he did. It was, it was out of him that that action happened. It was out of his love which is beautiful. Most sin is a result of people desperately trying to find the love that has already been freely provided in Christ. Let me say that again. I think it's important. Most sin is a result of people desperately trying to find the love that has already been freely provided in Christ. Let me say it another way. You will be much less prone to give in to temptation and sin if you are confident of the love that Father God has for you. You will be much less prone to sin and temptation. You might be hearing all this. You might be saying, yeah, I've heard this before, but here's my problem. It begins all the way at the jump. How did we become sinners? How is it that God rightly labels us as sinners? Isn't isn't God unfair in his decree of our guilt? After all, if you read the story, were we not deceived, right? Right? How is, it that, how is it that God can fairly call us sinners? And doesn't that seem like a setup to, to the whole thing? And if you can't answer that question, well, I understand that none of the rest of this really matters or makes sense. So to answer that question, um, I want you to work with me a little bit and, and, and play imagine. So I need your mind, you, you to kind of loosen your mind, let yourself imagine with me the scenario that I'm describing. Um, I know it's, it's a little bit like playtime, but let's, let's just have fun with it, okay? So imagine this with me. Imagine you were on a plane, and it crashed on an island. Now, if you're a man, imagine that you are married to a wife who's three months pregnant. She's with you. If you're a woman, 
Imagine that you are that pregnant wife, and the two of you are the only survivors of the crash. Okay, so if you're a lady in here today, you're three months pregnant, you're with your husband, the plane goes down, you guys are the only ones that survive. Men, you're married, your wife is pregnant, you guys are the only two that survive. Okay, so you are able to salvage some plane parts and use some of the resources on the island to begin to build a life there because you know that your plane was so far off course from the storm that the chance of rescue is very slim. So maybe you built a signal fire, you did some of the things that might help, but you realize you're smart enough to understand probably nobody's coming. They probably assume we're dead. So 10 years pass, and incredibly, you've been able to survive and thrive on this remote island. You know every nook and cranny of the place, and you've instructed your now nine-year-old son many times to stay away from the deep holes that are found near the rocks at the base of the only mountain on the island. You've told him repeatedly that you love him, and this restriction you've given him is for his good, because if he disobeys you and he insists on playing near those rocks, he could easily fall in, and this will certainly lead to serious injury or death for him. Okay, have you gone this far with me? Have you followed the story? Are you in the story? Good. One day, your son doesn't return from exploring and playing. And as the sun is going down, you get that sickening feeling in the pit of your stomach that something has gone wrong. You run to the caves and you yell for your boy. For several minutes, you get no response. And then, you hear the faint cry for help coming from one of these deep holes. The terrible reality sets in. Your son has disregarded the loving warning you gave him. He's fallen in and now he's in serious trouble. You can faintly see the bottom of the hole. You can see it's roughly 40 feet down. And so you grab some rope that you've managed to make from the vegetation on the island. You secure it at the top and you climb down. Your spouse has an injured leg from a recent fall. She can sit at the edge of the, the hole and hoist the boy back up. But there's no way that they could pull you up. The walls of this hole are sheer and vertical. And you know if you climb down and rescue your son, you know if you climb down there and you put that rescue rope around him and it's pulled up, that you may never come out of that hole yourself. You may have to pay the ultimate price to rescue your child who was only in that situation because they chose to disobey you. However, there's no hesitation. You are absolutely willing to die so that they may live. And though you are battered and bruised, and your hands and feet are cut and bleeding from the small, sharp ridges that you grabbed and used as handholds to pull yourself up out of this hole. It almost seems miraculous as if someone is holding you up as you struggle to climb out. And you pull yourself up out of that hole. You get to the top, you roll over the edge, and you lay there panting and bleeding, but grateful that you made it out. Now let me ask all of you something. Would it be right and fair for the son then to look at that parent laying there, panting and bleeding from rescuing them, and say to them, you don't love me. If you loved me, I would have never fell in that hole. Is that a fair assertion on the place of the child? Have they thought through the implications of the situation? Would it be fair for that child to assess everything that had just happened and come away with the understanding that you don't love me. If you loved me, I would have never been in that hole. Seems a bit off base, doesn't it? This, my friends, is what we do to God. 
who warned our first parents, Adam and Eve, of the consequences of sin, that separation from God the Father, the source of all life, would be the result. He also gives us the same loving warning over and over in his word. For example, Romans 6.23 says this, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet, we, like foolish children, disregard these loving commands, and then in our insolent ignorance, we want to shake our fist at he who warned us of the consequences and then paid the ultimate price to rescue us from them. You probably already figured out, you and I are the kid in the hole. God the Father is the one willing to risk everything to rescue silly children, disobedient children, who put himself through the pain of the cross, the suffering of the cross. And the only reason he was ever in that situation was because of our disobedience. And yet somehow we have people who will stand and shake their fist and say, but how dare you call me a sinner? He can call us sinners because he warned us. He told us from the jump, I made you for me. I made you to worship me. I made you because I love you. Safety is within the parameters of this relationship. There's one thing I'm asking you not to do. That's disobey me. And what do we do? And none of us are innocent. We can't go back and just blame Adam and Eve. Because though they had the warnings of the discussion with God himself, we have the warnings of the scripture. And all of us, at some point, have chosen to disobey those loving commands. All of us, at some point, have chosen to go play by the rocks. And most of us, at some point, if we really think about it, have felt the pain of falling down that hole. I'm thankful to God today that his love for us is so great that he doesn't come stand and look down the rim of that thing and say, I told you, and leave us there to suffer our fate. That would be fair. You want to talk about fair. Don't, don't levy your, your accusations of unfairness towards God. Please don't do that. That's insolent ignorance. You're right, the whole situation isn't fair. It's not fair at all. It's not fair to God. <laughs> it's not fair that he would have to go down in there, risk his life to save the, those that he told don't ever go around that thing, right? Praise, praise God. I'm thankful for that. In, in the same way that that story lays out a scenario, it's not that much different than what happened with us. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, tells them not to touch the tree. They do the one thing that he told them not to do. They, they decide they know better. Sin enters the world. We are separated from the God who loves us. Much time passes. Jesus comes to solve that problem. We couldn't fix it. We couldn't get ourselves out. He had to come. He had to come right down into it, rescue us. He had to pay the price, and I'm so glad that he did. That's why he came and lived a perfect life, died in our place for our sins, and then he rose from the grave. And I, I don't understand how somebody un sees that narrative and ends up saying, well, how, how dare God classify me a sinner? Well, I didn't know. Romans 1 says you did. Um, and I think we could avoid a lot of frivolous conversation if we would at least acknowledge that those, at least that much is true. We could move on from there. It's also interesting and, and mind-boggling to me that someone would reject the free gift of salvation. To reject salvation is like being that little boy in that hole and ignoring the rope when it falls down. Refusing the help of their parent who loves them. 
They made the choice. They disobeyed. That ended them up in pain and danger. The parent then comes to rescue them, throws the rope down, to reject God's loving call of salvation, to reject the opportunity to come to him by faith in the finished work of Christ, not to come by whatever you're going to do, not to, not to follow the exact path that Christ did and end up paying the price yourself, but, but simply to, to grab a hold of the rope that he provides, the free gift. It'd be just like getting hit in the head with that rope that your parent threw down and saying, no, nah, take that back, I don't want it. Doesn't make sense when you think about it in that light. Many people will spend all of their life trying to fix the problem that their disobedience created all on their own. They will try to climb up out of that hole by doing good things or not doing bad things. But in the end, there's no possible way they can do it. They are too weak and frail to make it out on their own. And the more they try, the more frustrated and discouraged they become. It is only by placing faith in the scarlet red rope of salvation through the shed blood of Christ that anyone may be saved. I'm thankful that's true. So what does it look like when we know that we are loved? I, the first part there was an attempt to show you that the, the fact that the Bible tells us that we are lost and separated from God by our sin is not evidence that God doesn't love us. It's evidence that we didn't love him. That's all it tells us. And so what does it look like? What are the effects? What are some of the implications of somebody understanding at the deepest part of their heart that they are loved by God? What does it look like to really, truly believe that you are loved? There's probably many more implications. We'll look at just a few together. Loved people are joyful people. I have seen people with nothing surviving literally by living on the backside of a Mexican garbage dump with more joy than many I see in this perpetual Disneyland that we call America. The first trip that I ever took to Mexico, we, we went to a community that was called El Chicote. This side of the mountain was a village, and their subsistence, the way they survived, was going just over the top of the mountain to what was an incredibly large garbage dump. And by picking through that, and whatever they would get whatever they could to survive off of, find something to sell, recycle, uh, really it was, it was pretty pitiful. And this, this village specifically was kind of so far off the beaten path that the only way electricity was running to the town was that um, one brave Mexican fella one day climbed up the, the electric pole. And I'm not talking about the ones outside your house. I'm talking about, you, you know, the ones that are big, they look like almost a, um, a four-sided A, and they have huge metal things that come out. I'm talking the big, high-rise, transcontinental wire lines. This guy would climb up there with two wires, hook them on there individually without dying, hopefully, come back down, and they would run those wires, and they would, go, they would just run them right down the middle of the street. And people would come and take their own wires and tap those and run it off to their house. That was the only way electricity happened. The government didn't care enough about that community to run it the right way, and so somebody had to do it like that, okay? And I watched as children who likely had never seen a touchscreen, much less held one, uh, they would laugh and play and jump back and forth like a jump rope over these live electrical wires running down the middle of the road as they snapped and sizzled and popped as raindrops were coming down hitting them. I'm watching blue, I mean the arc of this electric running off of this thing because it's not ran right, it's not grounded, it's super dangerous, and these kids are laughing and giggling 
as if they were playing with a brand new toy, just jumping back and forth over these electric lines like a jump rope. And here's my question. How can people with so little that live in constant risk of not having enough of the basic things required for survival, how could they ever smile at all, much less most of the time as they do? The answer is that when they gather into their little one-room shack to eat a simple meal, or they lay down all crammed together to sleep, they have the one thing that every human heart craves above all else. They love one another and are loved by one another. Loved people are joyful people. Loved people are also secure. The Bible teaches us that we are completely known by God. Anybody freaked out yet? <laughs> Woo, I didn't know I was coming to hear that. The Bible, and maybe you haven't seen that before. Uh, the Bible teaches that we are completely known by God. It says, even though our heart is deceitfully wicked, it might trick us. We're not tricking God. God, by his Holy Spirit, knows the deepest part, innermost, every part of us. Even the things we think we've hidden and buried are laid out open before him. Many of us will struggle to trust this truth, but it makes it no less true. We are fully known by God. And fully loved by him. Some of you believe that's mutually exclusive. Some of you believe because you know you, you know your past, you know your inner monologue, even at this moment. You know, you think you know the, the inner parts of your heart, you know your own sins and your propensities, the, the, the tendencies for where your thoughts go sometimes. Some of you cannot grapple with the truth that God could know you completely and love you completely. What I'm presenting to you is the fact that that's what the Bible teaches. And I'm asking you to believe it. Our ep epidemic of insecurity in this day is in many ways the direct result of not believing we are loved. Can I say that one more time? Because before I go into what I'm going to next, I want you to understand where I'm starting. The epidemic we have of insecurity in this day, in people, is in many ways the direct result of not believing we are loved. You see, I started at the beginning saying... While we were yet sinners, God loved us. He proved it in Christ. And I, and I told you that most of you would probably assume most people think God loves them. At least they would say that with their mouths. What we're doing now is drilling down into the implications. We're drilling down into what happens when you are loved completely and fully by a God who is so perfect as ours. And what this might do is begin to scratch away the surface a little bit and show some of the places where maybe you're not as convinced of God's love for you as you thought. Okay? One example of this epidemic of insecurity that comes from not believing we're loved uh, is that people who are loved and know it don't have to change the way they look to be affirmed or accepted. Let me give you a couple facts. In America, we spend $12 billion a year on cosmetic surgery. I know you hear the news a lot and you hear big, big numbers, but just give me a second. I'll try to put this in reference. 12 billion may not sound like that much, but just, do you guys know what a billion is? A billion's a thousand millions. Can you even conceive of that? A thousand millions. That's so much. We spend 12 of those a year on cosmetic surgery. 20 billion, eight more billion, eight more thousand millions we spend on weight loss, including diet books and pills, in this country alone. 85% of those consuming these products are women, 
Give me a second. This, I believe, is the tragic result of societies for centuries objectifying women and treating them as objects to be assessed instead of people to be loved. It breaks my heart. The numbers in general break my heart. It really, really bothers me (laughs) that 85% of that number is women. If men were really loving and protecting and treating women the way they were supposed to be treated, I think that number would go way down. In researching this, I, it made me just want to make sure I, I do a lot better job of constantly affirming the unique beauty of the women in my life. And so I've tried to do that um, with my wife this week. I've, I've tried to do that more with, with my daughter, Lucy. Um, I even took a picture of it. She has a little tank top that says, be your own kind of beautiful. And uh, I, I mean, those of you that know her know she's just gorgeous anyways, but... Um, I just said on there that she's, I said, baby, you're every kind of beautiful. She didn't have to be her own kind because she is. Not, and it's not just because she's got beautiful blue eyes. And it's not just because she's got this beautiful, curly, blonde hair and, uh, and her mama's features. It's not just that. And then she, she's just so pretty on the inside. She's a sweet girl. The love of God is already blossoming in her and it affects the way that she deals with people. She's soft. Um, she's a really beautiful girl. And I just want to say to you today that those of you that are in here, those of you that are mothers in the faith, those of you that are sisters in the faith, um, please, please assess how you view yourself physically in light of the love of God. God, I don't care if nobody else has done a good job affirming you right where you're at. Listen to me. God loves you. He loves you and he made you. And because God loves you and because he made you, you are beautiful right now. Right now, you're beautiful. Well, well, nobody's told me that. God has. And his opinion matters much more than any of the other knuckleheads around you. And just give me this, and I'm saying this because I love you. His opinion matters more than even what you've decided about you. You're beautiful because God says so. Praise God for that. I'm so thankful that you can have that assurance today. I don't know if you'll believe it. I don't know if you'll take it. Some of you will throw that away. Some of you have built too thick of walls in regards to what you believe about you, but I'm just, I'm asking you. I'm asking you to take that truth, ladies. God loves you. He calls you beautiful because he made you. Jesus died for you to have you. Praise God for that. In contrast to the $32 billion we spend per year on cosmetic surgery and weight loss schemes, we spend about $170 million a year on pediatric cancer research. And pediatric cancer is the number two cause of death for children ages 5 to 14 in America. I just, wanted to, I just wanted to show us what happens when we don't really believe what the Bible says about the love of God and, and the implications it has for our actions and our priorities. Because I don't know if you can actually gauge. I had to, I promise you, it took me 15 minutes, and some of you will ridicule me for this. That's fine. I'm not a math guy, not my strongest suit. I had to sit for 15 minutes and think about what does $170 million really mean stacked up to $32 billion. It took serious noodle time on my part to come up with the answer. And I couldn't even get the exact percentage, but here's what I can tell you. I know all those zeros can be confusing. It's much less than, $170 million is much less than 1% of $32 billion. Much less than 1% of what we spend 
on cosmetic surgery and diet pills is spent on trying to figure out how to save babies from cancer in this country. What does that say about our priorities? What does that say about how much we really believe that God loves us, just like we are? There's nothing wrong whatsoever with doing what is necessary to be healthy. This is actually God, godly stewardship of the body God gave you. But to have a compulsion to change your appearance so that you may be loved or accepted is a smack in the face to Father God who says you already are. I just, I just want to say to you that if that's, if that's struck a nerve, please understand I'm not picking on anybody. I desperately, desperately love you and care for you. Well, you don't know my name. Yeah, but Jesus has loved me so good, it makes me love you whether I know you or not. And I desperately care that you at least begin to believe what the Bible says about how God thinks about you. That you would not be driven by the compulsions that are caused by a lack of love. You have been, you are loved perfectly today. Even if you came in here today a sinner, even if you came in here today a God denier, you are loved perfectly today. Because, and some of you, some of you, your theology, you're working through this, and you're not liking what I'm saying, and I know why, but, but let's go back to Romans 5.8. I rest my case. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did he not? He did. He came, he came to save the whole world, right? Is that going to happen? No, some will reject him. Some will choose to leave the rope where it's at. Some don't want relationship with him, and that's tragic. But here's what I do know. I know that's not God's desire. I know his great hopes that every person would, would grab that rope because he loves them. That's why he died for them. Even before they grabbed the rope, right? He had to die to get the rope. You understand that? So he had to love us first. He did. You're loved today. I don't care if you hate God. I don't care if someone drug you here. God loves you, and I hope that agitates you a little bit because I love you. Amen. That was a good spot to amen. You missed it. That's all right, love city. You guys know I'll help you when you miss them. When you are loved and secure, you don't have to gossip or bring others down to lift yourself up. Okay, so we're still, the, uh, the overarching implication we're talking about is that loved people are secure. So the first thing we said inside of that is that loved people don't have to change their appearance to, um, you know, be affirmed or accepted. They already are, clearly. Um, here's the second implication under that umbrella. When you're loved and secure, you don't have to gossip or bring others down to lift yourself up. Okay? Let me read you a couple of scriptures. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Woo! Who else needs a muzzle after that verse right there? Yes, many times things come out of my mouth that don't fit that description right there. God help me. Thank you for his grace and mercy. I need it, but I want to do better at that tomorrow than I'm doing today. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only what is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Praise God. Um, you, can't, you can't gossip and, and obey that verse for sure. Let me give you another one. Romans 1, 29 through 30. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents. Woo! Here's my question. Why is gossip listed 
with all these other terrible things. Doesn't that seem to you like a misclassification? At face value, if we're being honest, I think it does. I think when we think about murderers and God-haters and some of the other more extreme-seeming examples of, of what people do when they disobey God, we, we don't typically throw gossip in that mix, but for some reason the Apostle Paul did. So why is that? Why did, as he's describing kind of the worst of what happens when we are separated from God, he puts gossip in there. Uh I don't think it is a misclassification. I don't think it was he needed one more thing to say. I believe most people gossip because it makes them feel important, because they know the information, or it makes them feel affirmed because they fancy themselves not as bad as the people they're gossiping about. I'm talking about why gossiping is listed next to murderers and God-haters, okay? Don't, get, don't lose track of where we're at. Does gossiping belong there, or did Paul misstep here? Did, did he... Did he throw that in and along with some other sins? It really shouldn't have gone there. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, it's the Scripture, so obviously I don't believe that, but why? Okay, so the only way you need to feel important or affirmed through gossip is if you've rejected the clear teachings of Scripture that you are important and affirmed by God through Christ. Right? Why do we have this need that causes us to gossip? Why do we have a need to feel important because we know the information? Why do we have a need to put somebody low so that we can feel high? What does that tell us about what we believe really deep down on the inside? It tells us maybe that we've not totally fully bought into the fact that we are affirmed, accepted, and important because Jesus died on the cross for us. Could, could be. I'd say has to be. Here's the other question. Is Outright rejecting the perfect, so if, if I think we have to reject the teaching of Scripture that we are important and affirmed by God through Christ. So, is outright rejecting the perfectly expressed and eternally beautiful love of God that much different than hating Him? Why does gossip go in the same bucket as God-hater? Like, if I'm listing sins, God-hater is like, I don't, I don't even want to say it out of my mouth. It like burns my tongue as it leaves my mouth, right? Ugh, I don't want to say God-hater. That sounds like a bad deal. But but gossip's listed right next to it. So what, why is that? And here's, here's my point. In order for us to gossip, we have to reject what God has said. We have to reject the clear teachings of Scripture that has said, you are loved, you are affirmed, you are accepted in Christ. And is the rejection of that is screaming back up from the bottom of that hole, I don't want your rope. Is that that much different than hating God? I, don't, I guess Paul didn't think so. Because he put them all together. And didn't Jesus teach us that the vitriol and disdain that we harbor towards those we tear down through gossip, that that's just as bad as murder? Didn't Jesus say that? He said, you've heard, don't, don't kill each other, but I say to you, you hate one another, you might as well have committed murder. Isn't Jesus fun? He takes away all the loopholes, right? We used to be, with the law, we used to be able to kind of wiggle around a little bit, right? And kind of get out of stuff. Nope, he came and just... Boom! Clamp down all of them with grace. Here's the implications of the fact that I'm here. Here's the implications of the fact that I'm about to bleed on a cross that you may be saved. Here's what that means. No longer can you get away with just not killing somebody out in the open. You can't even hate them. Woo! Grace demands much more than the law ever did. And I'm thankful because with grace also came the empowering of the Holy Spirit to do it. And so I... I should never, out of some twisted up, jacked up insecurity in myself or, or whatever else, be gossiping and talking bad about somebody else. 
we, we like to grade sins. We like to put them on a scale and imagine our own at the bottom of severity. The reality is Jesus cares a whole lot about what's going on in our heart because he knows what's going on in our heart ends up fueling our actions. And so please don't let yourself off the hook because you've not you know, pulled a cane and Abel and smashed somebody's head with a rock. I'm a pretty good person. I'm doing pretty good. I think I could probably climb out of this hole myself. I've never smashed anybody's head with a rock. Some of us can't even say that, right? So you know you're in trouble. Yeah, I see, the, I see those hands. Um, praise God for that. Uh, grace for us too, right? But um, for those of you non-head smashers in, in the room that might be tempted to think that just because of that, you're, you're in a better situation, um, the person that has annoyed you so much that you just had to vent to somebody else about them, the person that you fancied yourself somehow better than, that your sins were less disgusting to God than theirs, and, and you, you know, and we're good, guys. We're really good. We're master justifiers because we can, we can do this stuff and we can mask it as prayer requests. Hey, let me, let me just tell you this thing this person said or did so that, so that we can pray for them. You digging that hole deeper, dear one? Stop that, would you? Don't, don't mask gossip with prayer. Don't do that. Assess your heart. Be humble. Pray for them your dang self. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean if somebody is in need of prayer or has opened up their heart in a situation and asked people to hold them accountable and discuss that, that we don't do that. That's not gossip. How, what determines accountability and legitimate prayer for somebody? What, what's the dividing line between that and gossip? Well, of course, it's motive, isn't it? If I truly love them and what I want for them is their best and that's the whole point of the entire conversation in, in whatever context it finds itself, praise God for that. That's real Christianity. If hidden in there somewhere is, I'm feeling kind of a little bit better about myself because I'm talking about how bad this person stinks at being a Christian, ugh, that's disgusting and tainted and gossip and sop. Amen? Amen. You guys are excited about that one. Whoo! I thought someone was going to wave a praise banner. I didn't even know we had those. Okay. So, <laughs> yes. Loved people are joyful people. Loved people are secure. They're secure. Loved people love people. Many times when people do not believe that they are loved, they will try to acquire things to fill the void. God created humans so that he could love us, and so we could love him and each other. And so if we don't truly believe he or anyone else loves us, a part of our very essence is not fulfilled. We will go around with a gaping hole inside of us trying to cram anything that looks like it might fit into there. It always leads to brokenness and misery. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. And so he is its divine source. He retains sovereignty over its definition. 1 John 3.16 points us to the cross of Christ to try to begin to understand the height and breadth and depth of what love really is. It is not merely an emotion or an affection. It is not the deepest of either of these. It has to be more than hormones and chemical reactions within the body. Love is a part of the very character and nature of God. It is a divine attribute. And something we can share in and understand to a degree, but imperfectly because of the limitation caused by our own imperfection. And when we aren't connected to God's love for us, 
and we have no love from or for those around us, oftentimes we end up loving things and using people instead of loving people and using things. This is tragic and painfully visible in the world around us. So many people have the very core of their identity tied to where they live, what they drive, what they wear, and what they have. The reason this is tragic is because your home, your car, your clothes, and your possessions can never, ever love you back. Some people believe falsely that these things will get people to love them. If they are successful by whatever terms they use to define that, they feel they will then be worthy of the love and affection of others. I think, sadly, parents often fall into this trap with their children, believing that the best way they can show love to their kids is to provide not only for their needs, but all their wants. This leads to children who associate love with material things, and it handicaps their ability to truly love and be loved. It is a good desire to want to bless your children. I I do. I want to bless my kids. I do. But if the pursuit of wealth to acquire stuff, whether it be for ourselves or for them, if that pursuit gets in the way of investing time and energy and presence into them, our presence, right? Not presence like wrapped under the tree, but time and energy in our presence. If, If chasing after stuff stops from those investments in them, they will be left feeling hollow and broken. I can't tell you how many children of wealthy people I have sat down with who had every opportunity that the rest of you that grew up poor like me, that you're angry about all the opportunities they got, you have no idea how broken they are because all they ever got from mom and dad was the latest toys, the hippest clothes, and a car and a a college paid for. Bawling their eyes out because there was no indicator to them whatsoever that their parents loved them, but only that they shoved enough money their way to keep them out of the way while they pursued whatever they were doing. That's, that's tragic. And it'd be easy for most of us in this room who are probably not extraordinarily wealthy to kind of project that potential issue onto those who are. This potential is at every income level. Because what did I say? The pursuit of these things can get in the way. And so you don't have to have everything. You don't have to have it already. You don't have to be filthy rich, so to speak. But you could just be chasing this idea that if I could just provide these certain things or if I could get this certain thing done or reach this level of success, then I'll be worthy of the love and affection of my children, my spouse, the rest of my family, my friends. Guys, first of all, your kids don't, they care a whole lot less about the stuff than they do about just you, having you. They want you. Uh, and, and if you've got friends and acquaintances, people in your life that um, you don't have any affirmation, affection, or love from them without some external sign of success, I would just suggest to you, you cut those cords. Find some new friends <laughs> that love you for who you are, where you're at, and willing to jump on the journey with you right now. You can do what you want, but uh, it's just, just a humble suggestion. Uh, we can follow the lead of Father God in this. He has promised and faithfully given so many blessings to us who are his children. But the greatest of all the gifts he has given us is himself. God's plan of redemption, accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, has always been about 
restoring relationship between us and him. Who messed up the relationship, just to make sure we've got that clear? That's right, your hand belongs in the air. All of history, all that has happened, is the unfolding of the plan of a God who is glorified by the willful and love-filled worship of his creation. Let me say that again. All of history, all that has happened, is the unfolding of the plan of a God who is glorified by the willful and love-filled worship of his creation. And for this, we should be truly and eternally grateful. Guys, I realize that not everything in history has seemed like God's fingerprints were directly on it. And I would say, clearly, they haven't been. I think there's many things that have happened in, in, in history since sin entered the world that has broken God's heart to a greater degree than you could ever possibly experience. Um, th- there's been tragedies, and, and humans bent towards sin are capable of unimaginable things. And as much as you think that bothers you, it bothers God a billion times more. Right? Does that sound like a lot now that we know that's a thousand millions? It, it really, really, whatever you think hurts your feelings, man, about the way the world is, it, it bothers God all that much more. But what he's promised is, is he's, he's made a way that in this world, because of the finished work of Christ, we can be in relationship with him, empowered by his spirit, and have the ability to walk through this difficulty. We also have this promise. Things are not, always, things are not now as they will always be. Every single thing that has been made wrong because of sin will be made right in the end. Well, I want it now. Well, stop being an impatient child. We've got a mission to do in the meantime. That's to tell as many people as possible. They don't have to live down in that hole, batting away that rope over and over because they're too proud to grab it. There's hope in Christ. You don't have to live down there. You don't have to be hopeless. You don't have to keep scratching at the walls of that hole trying to do it yourself cutting yourself up and ending up sliding back to the bottom yet again, discouraged and broken. You don't have to do that. You take that rope of salvation, you loop it around your arms, you cinch it up tight, and guess what? King Jesus has, he's got, he can pull you out. And he will. Because he loves you. Will you believe that today? It's, It's true. It really is. The beauty of the scriptures is that they show us the story of God creating us for relationship with him. Us deciding we wanted something we thought would be better. Us finding out that there is only pain and misery outside of what we were created for. And God paying the price to fix the problem we created. The question today is, will you believe this? Can you believe what the scriptures teach? Will you believe God loves you? And live in light of that beautiful truth. Will you surrender your life to Jesus? Knowing he is the creator of all, but only father to those who desire to be his children. That's a tragic and heartbreaking truth. I'm thankful that it's true because it reveals something about God's character. But the, the reality is, there, you could be sitting in here today. You could hear all this evidence of God's incredible love for you. You could be pointed to the cross of Christ as proof of his incredible love for you. And yet you today, because of the hardness of your heart, objections of your mind, a combination of the two, you could stand today and say, no, I don't want to be a child of God. And God will let you do that. Many times because of my love for people, I just, I, sometimes I wish he would take that option away. But here's what I understand. 
God is a perfect father, much better father than I could ever be. And it's clear that what he created us for was legitimate, authentic relationship with him. And so if what he did, whether in the beginning or at some point because of our stupidity, just came in and said, okay, I can't handle this anymore, I'm taking the option away. What we would have then is a dictator just telling his robots what to do, not a father beckoning to his children, not a father beckoning to his creation, saying, Here's all the evidence of how much I love you. I've made a way. I've cleared a path. I've done everything possible so that it's very easy for you by faith to come to me. Just come to me. Just grab the rope, please. But there will still be those, many, who because of pride or disbelief or some just, maybe it's that they haven't heard it this way yet. Maybe they don't know it's as easy as reaching out and grabbing that rope by faith. But here's what the Bible tells us. You don't have to scrape and fight. You don't have to try to do more good things or less bad things. Today you can repent and acknowledge that you're in the hole and that you need someone to pull you out. And he will. It's as simple as that. And he'll love you. And he'll change you. And and some of the things you're worried about, the ways that you think, uh, the things that you're probably you're sure don't line up with what the scriptures say. Some of you are thinking, i got to get all that right first, and, and then maybe I can grab the rope. No, that's not how it works. It's really hard to see the truth of what's going on in the whole world, man, when you're down in a hole. Grab the rope. Come up to the daylight. Let the God who loves you begin to speak to you, lead you, guide you. Let that relationship begin to flourish. And Anything that's in you that, that maybe would be contrary to the truth of God, he'll, he'll begin to work on those things. He'll be patient with you. Because he loves you. He loves you. Do you believe that today? Do you believe you are loved by God? And does that matter to you? Does it have a direct effect on the way you think and live? It should. Because if things were the way they should be, if things were fair, we'd all be left to our little holes that we chose for ourselves. But the love of God causes him to go in on rescue mission after rescue mission and pursue us. I'm really thankful that's true. May we be a people who are joyful in any and every circumstance because we are loved by God and thus able to truly love him and others. May we be a people who are not arrogant but confident, secure in the fact that we are completely known by God and still loved by him. May the truth that we are loved people Cause us to love people. May we truly believe the gospel that tells us we are more broken and wicked than we would ever want to admit, and yet at the very same time, more loved than we could ever imagine. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for the simple truth. It seems seems to be said so much that maybe we lose its depth and beauty, but we have thankful today. We are rejoicing today that you love us. We know, Lord, we are ill-deserving of that beautiful privilege. Lord God, we thank you that it is only by what you did, it is only by the greatest act of love that you sent Jesus to live a perfect life we couldn't and then die the death that we should have in our place for our sins. It is only because of that. It is only because you made provision. It's only because you built a bridge. It's only because you wove a rope that we are saved today. 
Lord, may we just believe that you've done it. Help us to believe. Lord, I ask you to remove the barriers, whether they be something deep-seated in our hearts, something, a painful experience that causes us to doubt your goodness and love, or whether it's some fact that has built a wall of resistance around our minds. God, I ask by your Holy Spirit, you would lovingly chip those down. You would break them and crush them into dust, that they would blow away in the wind. And Lord God, that we would accept what is true, and beautiful, that we are loved by you, that we are accepted by you, that we are invited by you to come and go from just your creation to your children. Thank you, Lord, that that's true. Thank you that your love for us is never failing. Thank you that it's faithful. Thank you that your mercy, Lord, is perfect, that you're long-suffering and patient with us. Lord, some of us have been resisting that simple truth that you love us for a long time. Some of us have said really hateful things about you and towards you because of our pain and our misunderstanding. Lord God, I just ask that you would, uh, that you would lo- keep lovingly drawing us. Those that know because of the way that they've thought or the way that they've spoke about you that have stayed far off from you. Lord, I ask that you would just press in and show them that that your love for them hasn't changed. That you understand much of what they've thought or said was born of deception and that you come to bring the truth and the light. And that it is your delight to take those things away. To take brokenness and sin and pain and to destroy them and to replace them with love and peace, joy and happiness, assurance and salvation. Thank you, Lord, you are all about making the great exchange with those that will come humbly and willingly to accept it. Lord God, I just ask that um, the implications of your beautiful love for us would go beyond um, intellectual assent, that it would not just be a fact that we nod our head to, but God, I ask that your love for us would begin to infiltrate and change and affect every single part of our lives, that all of our words and our thoughts and our actions, our behaviors, our motives, all that we do, our interactions with other people, God, I ask that all of these things would be infected and changed by the truth of your love. May it not be a trite thing. May it not be something we we count as trivial because we've heard it so much. May we forever be enamored with the beauty of the fact that you would love wretches like us and invite us to be your children. Lord, we're never going to get over that. We're going to worship you forever because it's true. We are thankful people today. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.